The time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, November 13th, 2023. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. In tonight's news... Multiple energy companies are seeking to raise prices, but how much will state regulators let them? Meanwhile, local high school students attend the third Youth Annual Climate Conference over the weekend. And Dane County leaders are looking to identify the best way to use settlement money from the opioid crisis. In the second half, UW Health nurses call attention to ongoing staffing and burnout issues. This Friday is the anniversary of the 1915 Glasgow rent strike. And we review two new movies. This is Sean Bull and Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. In a news conference held last Friday, Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson said he would not be in favor of sending the military into Mexico to combat drug cartels at the present time. That idea was recently floated in a Republican presidential debate by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. In his remarks, Senator Johnson said that the focus of the federal government should be on securing the border, although he did not dismiss special operations in Mexico outright, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Johnson also said that he supports making aid to Ukraine contingent on the Biden administration curtailing immigration into the United States. Governor Evers announced on Friday that Microsoft is planning to expand its development into the Mount Pleasant area of Wisconsin, including into parcels originally set aside for Foxconn. Last May, Microsoft finalized plans to build a data center, with the project expected to break ground this month, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Now the software company is planning to expand on that facility, purchasing plots that were originally set aside for Foxconn as part of its sweetheart tax deal that ultimately underdelivered on the promised development. The new development will help Mount Pleasant recoup some of the debt it incurred when the Foxconn development failed to materialize. The Wisconsin Department of Health Services has referred 20 Medicaid providers to the state's Medicaid Fraud Control Unit as part of the effort to clean up the state's prenatal care coordination program. Secretary-designee Kirsten Johnson said in a statement to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel that of $2 million in claims made to the program from May to October, only some $20,000 had been spent legitimately. The program was meant to direct funds to prevent infant mortality, but has become rife with double billing and charging for services that were not actually provided. Two healthcare providers in Milwaukee are currently facing felony charges for fraud in the program amounting to more than $3 million. Tomorrow, voters in the town of Presque Isle will head to the ballot box to redo a spring election that was decided by one vote, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The unusual decision to redo the election was mandated by a circuit court judge who found procedural errors in the processing of two ballots, potentially enough to overturn the election. The election is for a seat on the town board, which has been held vacant as the election results have played out in court. Both candidates say they hope the results are more decisive this time around. The Madison City Council's final proposed amendments to the mayor's budget were made public last Friday, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The city has to pick funding priorities before it hits the state-mandated levy limits. 
One of the proposed cuts is the new public information officer position, which the mayor had prioritized as a way to engage with marginalized communities that might feel out of touch with city government. Other amendments include further funding for the John Nolan Drive underpass project and funding for a traffic engineering position. The city council will consider the budget amendments Tuesday night with further discussion possible on Wednesday and Thursday if needed. The Madison Streets Division is gearing up for winter. Last Thursday, it received its first shipment of salt for the season at its new storage barn on Badger Road. That first shipment alone was 1,121 tons of salt. City Recycling Coordinator Brian Johnson says the total average salt usage for a winter season is 8,130 tons. That includes both the salt spread directly on the roads, the salt in saltwater brine that's applied to the roads, and a small amount mixed into sand that's also spread on the streets. In a statement last Friday, Johnson told WORT that two additional salt storage facilities at South Point Road and Sycamore Avenue are full and ready to hit the streets. And now on to today's top stories. Since the start of this month, Wisconsin's Public Service Commission has ruled on several proposals from local energy companies looking to change their business practices over the next two years. WORT News producer Faye Parks has the details on those rulings. In Wisconsin, private energy companies must get approval from the Public Service Commission, or PSC, before changing their rates. According to their website, the PSC assesses companies' operating expenses and invites public input before making a final decision. Local energy companies, Madison Gas and Electric, Alliant Energy, and Excel Energy have requested significant rate hikes over the next two years. They pointed to the need for more funds due to recent inflation. MG&E also stated that they're looking to implement clean energy projects and update their utility grids. Earlier this month, the PSC approved a nearly 6% rate increase for MG&E customers, lower than the company's initial proposal. Over the next two years, the average residential customer will see a nearly $9 increase in their monthly electric bill. In the same time period, the average residential gas customer will see a total increase of $2.31 per monthly bill. And, after discussion last Thursday, the PSC rejected Alliant Energy's request to raise rates by 14% over the next two years. The approved rate hike will instead total 8.4% over the next two years. In that time, the average residential electric customer will see an increase of nearly $15 per monthly bill, and the average residential gas customer will see an increase of just over $4 per monthly bill. Also last Thursday, the PSC approved a comparatively modest rate hike for Excel Energy customers in 2024, raising the average electric bill by just over 60 cents and the average gas bill by $2.39. Tom Content is the executive director at the Citizens Utility Board, a nonprofit that the legislature created to advocate for all residential and small business utility customers in the state. The Citizens Utility Board advocated against rate hikes during the series of public hearings that the PSC hosted. It's a big difference for somebody who's making five or $10,000 a month than it is for somebody who's making much, much less. That's why I think there, there is heightened attention to the issue of affordability. The board is celebrating the PSC's choice to implement profit margin caps for Alliant, Excel, and MG&E. Now, MG&E's profits are capped at just under 10%. Content says that's a big deal. The balance between shareholders of the utilities and the 
customers has been out of whack with uh, utilities able to earn profits that are just too high and have been well above the national average. All three of the utilities were seeking to either keep their profits where they were or increase them at a time of increased cost pressures for customers. Till this case, Madison Gas and Electric has never had a cap on the earnings. So even if the Public Service Commission would set a profit level, the utility could go far above that. Now all the utilities in the state will have an earnings sharing mechanism that will return a portion of extra earnings or over earnings back to customers. Both MG&E and Align Energy also requested a change to their policies on net metering, a system that allows customers with solar panels to send back surplus energy. Under current policies, companies must compensate customers who give back surplus power on a one-to-one basis. Solar panels produce the most energy during the day when customers are generally not at home or using as much electricity, and that sends excess energy back into the grid. So when those customers rely on the grid later in the day, they only pay whatever amount their solar panels didn't distribute to their neighbors during the day. While MG&E and Align Energy proposed handling that compensation differently, getting rid of that one-to-one rate, the PSC rejected both proposals. Sam Donaisky is the executive director at Renew, a nonprofit organization that promotes using renewable energy. Donaisky says this is a win for green energy. Right now, Wisconsin is currently at less than 1% rooftop solar adoption. A independent study that our own state's public service commission asked for two years ago, the modelers of that study showed that of all the policy mechanisms, net metering is the policy piece that drives or incentivizes the most rooftop or customer-owned solar. The PSC is set to decide on a proposal from We Energies to increase their rates by just over 3%. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. The Dane County Youth Environmental Committee hosted its third annual Youth Climate Conference last Saturday. The conference was open to all Dane County students at no cost and sought to foster open conversation about climate change. WORT reporter Charlie Bolowski has the story with help from WORT's Zoe Sullivan. Last Saturday, students from nearly two dozen schools in Dane County and beyond attended the third annual Youth Conference on Climate. Students took part in sessions, learning how to more efficiently communicate climate change challenges. Other sessions highlighted educational and career opportunities in the environmental sector. Isaac Drangsvit is a senior at Wanakee High School. He participated in a panel about making Dane County more sustainable. He is hoping to gather more like-minded youth together for the Dane County Youth Environmental Committee. We just wanted more community through our youth. Um, we are, we're all worried about climate change. We're all nervous about our future, um, as everyone is. So being here and seeing others that actually care about it and want to be involved and meeting them and getting their information and, and being able to make friends here is really powerful. It makes us feel not alone in our communities because a lot of these people are going back and they're the one or two people that came from their community and going back and knowing that there's people behind them and willing to show up to their things even if they don't live in that town or that's, that school district is really powerful. So that's the main goal, is community and planning. He has seen positive feedback from his community and this year the conference has gained traction beyond Dane County. 
Um, this is our third year doing this conference, so the first two years it was only Dane County people. And I think finally our, our, our name kind of got out there and people actually reached out to us wanting to come. And we've, we have, I mean, we're, we have a great interconnected group of people, um, mostly through DCYC and all the other programs in Dane County that know people from every um, other community. And we invited them to bring their power because Dane County is largely progressive. And being able to show that we can still get this progress of environmentalism and sustainability in other rural and, and less progressive areas, because it's important um, here to show, like, look at how difficult it was for them, we can do this, was really powerful. And that was, that was a, a great addition to our conference this year. Xanthi Salmon, a senior at Madison County Day School, is also a part of the Dane County Youth Environmental Committee. She says the conference is a good place for youth to safely discuss climate change with local leaders. We wanted to create a conference by youth for youth because a lot of these other environmental conferences aren't as welcoming towards youth. They might be on a school day or have a fee to enter and it's, you're just surrounded by adults who you don't necessarily know. So here is a place for youth to meet tabling organizations and connect with their local leaders in a, an environment that feels safe. And I think our goal was also just to energize and inspire high schoolers um, in their green teams, maybe get people who aren't even in a green team and get them really involved. Salman explained that the committee's main projects focused around the Line 5 oil pipeline. She also hopes to discuss supporting school composting projects and energy efficiency. Akanksha Dendaluri is a senior at Vell Phillips Memorial High School and enrolled in the STEM program at Madison College. Something that I hope to see come out of this conference is a sense of empowerment in the young people at this conference. There's like an incredible number of people here, both from different organizations and just community members in general here to support us. And I want to make sure that we are comfortable and know that these people are here and that together we can take a positive step towards the future. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Charlie Bielowski. Zoe Sullivan collected audio for this report. According to Public Health Madison and Dane County, drug overdose deaths increased by 43% from 2014 to 2020. They say that opioids are the root cause of that trend. As one of 87 local governments that participated in opioid litigation against pharmaceutical companies and distributors, Dane County has received an $800,000 settlement. Dane County Supervisor Rick Rose is a member of the board's Public Protection and Judiciary Committee, which conducted information-gathering hearings alongside the Health and Human Services Committee. Together, they proposed an amendment to the 2024 budget to create an opioid settlement subcommittee, one that will determine how the settlement funds are allocated. This afternoon, Supervisor Rose shared the latest information on that subcommittee with WORT News producer Faye Parks. Thank you for joining me, Supervisor Rose. Always a pleasure, Faye. Thanks. So can you walk us through the history of this opiate settlement? So, you know, there were a lot of, if you will, class action suits where different government and community entities came together to file suits against pharmaceutical companies as well as distribution places, such as your local drugstore, a, a box pharmacy, if you will, to say there has been harm caused and lives lost because of not prescribing these properly. And so Dane County was part of that suit as was the city of Madison. In the state of Wisconsin, the state got a certain percentage of any settlement dollars that happened, and the community gets a certain settlement. So that's where we sit in Dane County. We have one round of lawsuits where the monies have come in, and they have been identified and spent with this 
2023 budget that we're currently in. And now as we're setting forward the new budget for 2024, we're taking a look at what the next suits are going to be, how much money they'll bring, and how we want to properly allocate those dollars to helping yield the public crisis. And so right now I saw Dane County is set to receive $800,000. Is that just the initial funds? These suits all relate to various distributors. So it's over a million dollars, but some of that money was pre-assigned. So it is roughly in that range of dollars, correct? And then you'll receive more over the next 18 years. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So as these things settle, the dollars come in. The tricky part as it relates to a budget is we don't know when those settlements will happen. There are companies going bankrupt, so we may not even see some of those dollars as it plays out. And I think the key here is to align those dollars to a crisis that's constantly changing. It's hard to commit those dollars to one thing at the beginning of a budget season when that pandemic can change during the course of the year. And what we want to do with those dollars is set them aside instead of just making a mass commitment at the beginning of the year. This will allow us to have some flexibility in what we're proposing. So why did the county decide to join the litigation? What kind of harm did these opioid distributors cause in the area? Opioids were kind of insidious. They kind of snuck in, much like HIV AIDS did. We started learning information and dealing with things that came up. By the end of that pandemic, which still people live with HIV, it's just more manageable 30 to 40 years later, but we had to be flexible and go with the loss in the community and how it affected us. Opiate was a little different. It happened. It came on very quickly. It was kind of quiet because it was involving companies that didn't want to be known that they were a part of it. And so I think it kind of snuck up at us. Also, we have HIPAA laws. We have privacy things. And so people kind of live in quiet. The other thing is stigma, I think, was a big part of this. And so I think why we got involved in the lawsuit is sheer numbers. We lost lives and we continue to lose lives. And once again, what's unique about Dane County, the lives that are lost to the current opioid crisis are lives that are disproportionately affected. So people of color, specifically in this case, older black men and the queer community are the ones most impacted by this. And so partnering with organizations that have their best interest in this community are really critical to us as a county. It's to make amends to the lives that are lost and to make sure this doesn't happen again. When the board approved the 2024 county budget last week, it created the Opioid Settlement Subcommittee. Can you tell us more about this effort? What we said is that the money was just kind of being assigned by the executive with us as a overall board to look at those dollars and decide if that was right or not. We decided there are some items in that budget proposal, which was over a million dollars, by the way, that we approved the Narcan, for instance. We know we need that in the community. We know it's currently the only thing keeping people alive. There was a lump sum of money, including a $500,000 expense. The executive had said we should put to an anti-fentanyl media campaign. That was never discussed in any of our public hearings. The consistent thought from the public was we need to be focusing on babies, who are the other number one people we are losing in Dane County. There are news stories out there right now of mothers being arrested for the death of their children and actually tried for that. So we know we need to help that community. We know we need to help African-American men. And no dollars, really, very few dollars were allocated to that. So we said, let's get a subcommittee. That subcommittee will include members of HHN, other Dane County board members. It will also include public stakeholders and people of interest in the community to identify where we want to spend that remaining $800,000. This amendment essentially made it so that it wasn't simply the county executive making these decisions. It was a group effort. Is that correct? That is accurate. It puts the dollars, as I always say, these are blood dollars, and I know it sounds harsh, but these dollars are not to necessarily be 
targeted to drug use. They are predominantly from an opioid settlement dollar to deal with the lives we've lost with opioids and people's addictions to opioids. So that's why we want more public input in it to say where we want these dollars to go. And I don't think it was a, I don't you know, necessarily know that it's a battle between how we want to spend them and how the executive thinks they're better spent. I think it's just in the process of creating a budget, taking all things into account and fine tooth helming it and kind of look at being more specific of where these dollars should go. Once this committee is done, you know, we don't want to get lost in committee. Again, there are people dying daily. We, we don't know when we're going to lose a life. So it is our goal to get this subcommittee put together and start on those efforts. We've already done the homework to hear what the public wants. We think it's going to be pretty smooth going forward. I've already heard from stakeholders that are focusing on what it would take to save babies' lives, for instance. I know there's a meeting this Thursday by stakeholders in the committee that are comprised of African-American men that want to take on that issue. So it's exciting to know that from a result of these various conversations, people are already coming up with ways they think the dollars can be better spent. So it sounds like the work that this subcommittee will be doing has already started. But what are the what are the next steps for the subcommittee? Have any members been selected yet? Heidi Weigleitner, who's my colleague and has done tremendous work as chair of HHN, has asked for a list of names, and it's been open record that people should submit who they would like. And so those names are being selected now, and soon, you know, that committee will be announced and put together. If anyone has any interest that's listening, please reach out to Heidi or myself or, you know, the county exec office or the board, board of supervisors office. We'd love to hear from you. And so when do you think these funds will start to be distributed? Do you have an idea of when that could happen? Yeah, so since the funds were technically rolled into the 2024 budget, they'll start to be spent as early as January 1. There are some of the programs that are just a continuation of what were put into the Harm Reduction Act. So those dollars, as soon as the budget's locked, go into play on 2024. The remaining dollars that you and I are currently talking about, we want those to be able to go into effect as early as January 2. So I think, you know, there'll be a lot of work done over the next six weeks. But again, some of those dollars will be held back to make sure we have those available to us should something uglier rear its head. We want to be able to commit all those dollars by April so they would still play out into next budget season, which we all know is around now. Um, so not, not to hold up the process, but to still make it a more nimble process where we can react and still have dollars available if, if some of their aspects come up in the crisis. Does this settlement sufficiently address the damage that pharmaceutical distributors have caused in the county, or is there a much higher need? There is a much higher need, not to get emotional. I mean, I think many of us can share our personal stories, myself included. I never want to see the day where my niece has to deal with the loss of the loved one and because Narcan wasn't available. I never want to see my friend Nancy lose her son Dan, who happened to be my best friend, because we didn't have systems in play when people were ready to get healthy. A million dollars is a drop of the hat with a $900 million budget. And what I think is shameful, too, just to put it out there, is that we aren't putting levy dollars into this. Right now, we're relying, everything we're relying to do any work in this community where there are greater needs, as you're suggesting. Those are just two stories I face this year, right? And so the impact of those are tremendous. And all we're relying on are the opioid dollars. So I firmly am going to take it on personally that we also have to match those dollars through other means in our community. A million dollars a year is not going to do the work we need to do. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Supervisor Rose. Yep, you You have a good day. That was Supervisor Rick Rose of Madison's East Side. He was part of the Dane County Board's cross-committee effort to distribute $800,000 in opioid settlement funds. In last week's vote, the board made steps to establish a subcommittee, including members of the community with lived experience, to use those funds to reduce harm. They hope to begin their work in earnest over the next six weeks.
time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us. Nurses at UW Health are raising the alarm over patient safety and staffing issues. Last Thursday, they took those concerns to state regulators. Here's more from Labor Radio's Frank Emspeck. On Thursday afternoon, UW nurses came to the State Department of Human Resources to file forms directly with the DHS documenting the crisis of understaffing, turnover, and burnout throughout the UW health system. The nurses came to DHS to file the forms to emphasize the severity of the issue. Labor Radio spoke with Shari Signer, a registered nurse in the infusion center with 20 years experience, and Mariah Clark, a nurse in the emergency department with nine years of service. We asked them to describe the issues which forced them to come directly to DHS. Shari Signer spoke first. A couple of the main issues that have been filled out the most in our notice of risk forms are from our operating room nurses. Our inpatient OR has lost a very large amount of its staff, and they are at critical staffing levels in the operating room. Extremely unsafe situation. Another issue is our Save Our Shift nurses, our SOS nurses. They are our generalist critical care nurses in the hospital who come and when nurses call because there's a a rapid decline in a patient care, um, we call our SOS nurses and they know how to help to try to attempt to save that patient. The hospital has recently decided that they were going to disband that group. And they believe that any nurse, that any critical care nurse at the hospital can take on the role of SOS, and that is not factual. Nurse Clark shared Nurse Signer's concerns. I also have concerns about disbanding SOS, not only because for UW to just think that nurses are, are utterly interchangeable and that SOS is a role rather than a specialist job team is ridiculous. The refusal of UW to listen to the nurses brought them to appeal directly to the state, Nurse Clark explains over-reliance on travelers, heavily leaning on on brand new nurses and nurses new to the department in critical situations, lots of turnover, you know, issues where staffing and overcrowding have, have led to a decline in the quality of patient care that we are able to provide. Since we've brought these concerns up with UW Health time and time again, but they've fallen on deaf ears. That's why it was so important for us to escalate today to the Department of Health, because if UW refuses to listen to nurses' concerns and just brush them aside, hopefully they'll listen to the state. Could you address the issue of burnout? We have rising numbers of patients and sicker patients and no additional staff. The burnout leads to high turnover, which in turn results in their hiring a huge number of temporary nurses or travelers. Most of this year, the ED at University Hospital has had 40% travelers during the day and over 60% travelers at night. In September of 2022, we reached an agreement with the UW to address staffing challenges through the labor management system. What has been the outcome of those discussions and did the system work? Sherry, the system has not worked. The hospital has been meeting with us at Meet and Discuss, but they have yet to agree to any of the the asks that we have come with. Um, The administration has not followed through with any of their promises, which is also a reason why we have escalated to going to the DHS to see if we can try to have somebody else hold them accountable. What specifically do you want the UW to do? To ask 
that we asked the hospital were over at our East Madison Hospital. There is only one critical care SOS staff over there. We were simply asking for them to increase that number to two to always have two critical care nurses at that hospital at all times. We also asked for SOS to be its own separate entity so that group of nurses could not be pulled into staffing. And the hospital turned around and said they were going to disband the SOS team. Let me make sure I understood what you said. You asked for one nurse and they couldn't do that? Is that what happened here? Um, yes, they, they will not give that East Madison campus a second SOS nurse. In their public response to the nurses, the UW Hospital claimed that the campaign was part of the nurses' drive for a union, which the nurses denied. UW also stated that the nurses should have gone through the internal procedures and brought the risk form's information directly to the UW administration. Rhea Clark summed up the nurses' views. If UW will work with solutions with us, we can provide the remarkable care that everybody in our community deserves. Thank you to Shari Signer and Mariah Clark for this interview. I am Frank Emsbach from Madison Labor Radio. This Friday, November 17th, represents a turning point in the victorious Glasgow rent strike of 1915. 20,000 households refused to pay the 25% increase instituted by landlords. Wartime job needs made Glasgow the most overcrowded city in the United Kingdom. Thousands marched on City Hall, threatened job actions, and won. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. This Friday, November 17th, represents a turning point in the Glasgow rent strike of 1915. 20,000 households participated in the protest against the 25% rent increase by opportunistic landlords responding to a severe war-driven housing shortage. Thousands of women, housewives, and workers marched on the sheriff's court in support of 20,000 rent strikers. The action led to rent control throughout Britain during the war. One observer, Willie Gallagher, wrote, From the early morning the women were marching to the center of the city where the sheriff's court is situated, but even as they marched, Mighty reinforcements were coming from the workshops and the yards, from far away Dalmure in the west, from Parkhead in the east, from Carthcart in the south, and Hyde Park in the north. The Dungareed army of the proletariat invaded the center of the city. In the absence of public housing, families across the UK in 1915 were at the mercy of landlords who could hike rent at will. The outbreak of World War I exacerbated already existing housing crises across the country as wartime industry drew thousands of workers to the industrial cities. Glasgow saw a huge increase in wartime production in the shipyards, engineering workshops, and munitions factories, with newly arrived workers and their families increasing the demand on an inadequate housing supply. Glasgow suffered an influx of roughly 70,000 new residents from 1912 to 1914. By 1915, Glasgow had become the most overcrowded city in Britain. In February 1915, landlords informed tenants that all rents would be increased by an outrageous 25%. Most families, especially those whose primary breadwinner 
was off fighting the war, could not afford to pay the increased rent. In response, tenants all over the city mobilized to fight the Huns at home, as they characterized the profiteering landlords. That same month, the Glasgow Women's Housing Association had its first meeting to resist rent increases. The rent strike in Govan, a working-class community on the southwest edge of the city, occurred when a landlord attempted to evict a woman whose husband was a soldier because she owed him a pound. However, the landlord's agents were unable to carry out the eviction because of hundreds of angry neighbors, led by John Wheatley, an active and prominent member of the Independent Labor Party. ILP blocked their way into the apartment and voiced outrage in an effort to keep the woman's housing secure. The ILP was a labor-oriented social democratic group that eventually merged into the Labor Party. Mary Barber, who led the rent strike to its close, joined the ILP in 1896 and there learned about nonviolent actions and political protest. She helped form and led the Glasgow Women's Housing Association. Her group organized the women. The men were busy at work and in their own union organizations. The men were prohibited from striking, which placed an emphasis on the political actions of the women. The women had the freedom to organize during the day and discuss strategy. They led the large protests and defended their neighbors from eviction. On one occasion, an eviction agent lied to a woman, telling her that her neighbors had paid the increased rent, so she paid him the increase. But Miss Barber and her legions went to the eviction agent's home and demanded the money back. He was intimidated by the sheer number of women in and around his home and returned the money. During the women's campaign, one woman would act as a neighborhood sentry and ring a bell if she saw an eviction agent alerting everyone to come out with their makeshift weapons, flower bombs, rotting food, white clothes, and similar objects. The women deterred eviction agents from entering the tenement buildings. On November 15th, thousands marched in support of the 20,000 households participating in the rent strike. The city had cited 49 strikers for striking. Thousands gathered around the courthouse protesting. Most of the workers threatened industrial action if the case was not withdrawn. At the end of the day, the city dropped the charges, freeing the strikers. On November 25th, a bill restricting rent increases was introduced and quickly won parliamentary approval. Rents were dropped to 1914 levels across the British Isles for the duration of the war, helping millions of working-class people. As for Barber, she became an anti-war suffragist and one of the country's first women city council members, fighting for women's rights and housing reforms for years. And that is our story for today. For the past of the past, I'm Harry Richardson. now 6:43 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews The American Buffalo, a new Ken Burns documentary of tragedy and partial redemption. 
And summer may be over, but there are still superhero movies. Harry says The Marvels is a fun, girl power action film. I think that our greed and our industrialization would blink this thing out. This is the Buffalo's last chance. They've survived. We've survived. We both persisted. And that was Glib from the trailer for The American Buffalo, a new documentary by Ken Burns. It recently started streaming on Wisconsin PBS. This is a typical Ken Burns Talking Heads historical piece that is still very relevant today. The story is told in two segments each, two hours. The first is difficult to watch. It's about the rise and near extinction of the buffalo. The second, which focuses on restoration efforts, today's collective herd is over 350,000, gives us some hope. The story of the American bison is really two different stories, says Rosalind Lapeer, Native American ethnobotanist. It really is the story of indigenous people and their relation with the bison for thousands of years, and then enter not just the Europeans, but the Americans. And that is a completely different story, and that is really a story of utter destruction. In fact, as the documentary points out, they had existed in harmony for 10,000 years. The buffalo was the largest and most numerous animal in North America, ranging from the Arctic to the Rockies, to Appalachia, and to Florida, and to what is today Central Texas. Central Texas is the area where the first Europeans first encountered the bison, the Spanish explorer Obar Nunez Cabeza de Foca in the early 1530s. Estimates give the number then of at least 30 million, perhaps twice that, but no one really knows. Native Americans gathered food, clothing, tools, and shelter from the bison. Native spirituality is deeply entwined with the buffalo. Then the Europeans and the Americans came to slaughter them for profit. Such a targeted, swift, wholesale destruction of an animal species by humans had never been recorded and hasn't been since, says historian Dan Flores in the documentary. Interwoven with the buffalo's destruction was that of native peoples, benefiting white settlers and their government. Eradicating the buffalo decimated the food and community connections for Native Americans. An estimated 10% of Plains Native Americans died of malnutrition and disease in the winter of 1883 to 1884, when the mass slaughter of the buffalo peaked. That this policy was intentional was starkly pointed out by Teddy Roosevelt, future president and conservationist. In 1901, he lamented the buffalo's needless and brutal slaughter, but in the same breath said the buffalo's destruction was a condition precedent upon the advancement of white civilization. Above all, the extermination of the buffalo was the only way to solve the Indian question. The buffalo's disappearance was the only method of forcing them to at least partially abandon their savage way of life. From the standpoint of humanity at large, extermination of the buffalo has been a blessing. In part two, Teddy Roosevelt joins a select group of former buffalo hunters who, through individual and collective action, set in motion the current herds of buffalo today. 20,000 bison are protected on federal land and state preserves currently, several of them dating to the Roosevelt presidency. Most of the rest, though, are privately held and bred for slaughter. The path to redemption for white Americans starts in reflecting on the questions asked by historian and Blackfoot tribal member Rosalind Lapeer in the documentary. Why are Americans so destructive? Why is this part of our history? Up next, a light-hearted superhero movie that celebrates girl power. Captain Marvel. The Annihilator. You took everything from me. And now I'm returning the favor. 
And that was lit from the trailer for The Marvels, directed by Nia DaCosta. This is a fun addition to the Marvel movie universe, and uniquely, little background movie knowledge is needed. Although it probably would be more fun if you had seen the first Captain Marvel movie and the TV show Ms. Marvel. It's also the shortest Marvel movie, but it's an hour and 45 minutes of pure escapism. All you need to know is explained in a few minutes of backstory at the beginning of the movie. Captain Marvel, Brie Larson, is the galaxy's most powerful superhero fighting alien menaces. Ms. Marvel, Eamon Villani, is a superfan of Captain Marvel, a teenager who accidentally gets superpowers and becomes Marvel's first Muslim hero, whose show is on Disney+. Our third brand new in this movie hero, with no superhero name yet, Captain Monica Rambo, Tiona Paris. Monica is Captain Marvel's estranged niece. The three are forced to work together. They soon confront a fun, powerful villain, Darben, Zoe Ashton. All in all, a pretty fun addition to the Marvel saga, worth watching for the warm interactions of its characters. There are some nice bits with Marvel's family, plus the return of Nick Fury, Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, and stay a few minutes to see a fun teaser for a follow-up movie. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. The staff at Madison Central Library's Bubbler Room were surprised when they walked into the room to see a full-size replica wishing well in the interior space. The well is courtesy of Madison multimedia artist Maria Shermer-Devitt, who is in the middle of her four-month residency at Madison Central Library. Maria spoke to host Brian Standing on this morning's 8 O'Clock Buzz. Maria Shermer-Devitt joins us now in the studio. Welcome to the 8 O'Clock Buzz. Good morning. Great to be here. What kinds of wishes can you grant here as an artist in residence? Are you imbued with magical powers? (laughs) No, I wish I I were. (laughs) Um, No, but there's something I think very powerful about a place where people can put this magic together. There are places all over the world where people come and make wishes and hope that their wishes are granted. And I remember as a kid going to the central library and there was a little fountain. I remember throwing pennies in there. So you've had this this wishing well up for a while now. And, yes. and part of the idea is to collect wishes from people and then they are aware that they're going to be made public, those yes. wishes? Uh, the hope is that I'm going to make them into a book. I see. Okay. Um, and the, I want to just say that though the design and the concept was mine, but the actual beautiful woodworking is done by Sylvie Rosenthal, who's like a phenomenal woodworker. I think she has an exhibit now at the Watchers Gallery, and she was just—it it was really a wish come true to get to work with her. Uh, yeah. So how did that? How did that collaboration work? Well, the—I think in some ways the bubbler feels like a place where wishes happen. The incredible program assistant Carly Latimer helped make that connection. So I was talking to her about wanting to make a wishing well with like handmade bricks and she was like well like maybe this could be a permanent thing and she was like we know someone so, <laughs> so you hadn't you hadn't worked with uh, uh this woodworker I'm, no I'm sorry, no before so yeah so that connection happened through the library yeah it was amazing and it, I, the first meeting i was just like you know it'd be really cool if it was big and you know like maybe you can't see to the bottom of it and just kind of like brainstorming and silly was like she paused and was like yeah i think we can make that happen <laughs> wishes do come true wishes do come true so you've been collecting some uh wishes from this wishing well do you have any that you can share with us yes okay so one of the things i love about the bubbler in this project is just it takes a lot of people to make things happen so the wishes have been scanned they have a wonderful student intern so we have a bunch of them scanned so i just want you to tell me to stop and this will be the wish of the week okay 
I wish for everyone's well-being and for them to have a good day. Oh, that's a lovely wish. Yeah, really sweet. You can't see it, but it's like... It's handwritten. Handwritten. Yeah. Uh, we had typewriters, too, that had to go to the hospital, but... The, the, the typewriters had to go to the hospital? Typewriters had to go to what, the typewriter what hospital. What tragedy happened to the typewriters? Well, they got loved too hard. <laughs> 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 and all the keys got stuck together. All the and... keys got stuck together. Their ribbon got pulled out. Oh, dear. Oh, yeah. dear. Oh, dear. Yeah. Was... So maybe safer to do it with pen and pencil. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what, else have, what else have you been doing in your artisan residency and what's coming up? Well, one other thing, one of the things that I've been wishing for lately is a return of some kind of sanity. And mm. part of this, you know, I feel that's a big in, wish. It's a big wish. And I feel it like in myself, in our world, and also in our ecosystem. So I've been thinking about, you know, pre-colonial times and Wisconsin was mostly made up of oak savannas. So this wish of a return to this like collective abundance where the landscape and people were in more harmony together. So anyway, so I'm making a oracle deck of creatures in the oak savanna. So that's one of the projects I've been working on. What is an oracle deck? It's like a tarot deck, if you're familiar with tarot decks that have, most tarot decks have all of the same cards, but an oracle deck is a similar deck that you can divine things. You pull a card and you get some wisdom for the day or the year. You ask a question, but instead of there being an empress, there is maybe a a bur oak tree. And the bur oak tree will give you some... Some wisdom. Some wisdom. Okay. Yeah. So these are the these day. are cards that you've designed. And yes. uh, are, so they're, they're physical paper cards? The physical paper cards that I'm planning to letterpress print. And the, you know, the advice is I'm actually crowdsourcing also in the library. So asking questions like what brings you into center? Um, what practices help you come into balance? For people who don't know, what is the technique of letterpress printing? How does that work? Oh. Uh, I love letterpress printing. So it's the way that things were first printed. So it's the kind of first movable type. So imagine tiny little, you know, the size of newspaper text, for example. Each one of those was an individual metal letter that was hand set into little, basically like a puzzle that you're constructing. Um, and then you lock it up really tight, you put it in the bed of the press, and then you run paper over it that way. I'm using a more modern technique for this letterpress that's taking a digital design and using like a photopolymer plate to print it. But It's a weird conglomeration of uh, modern and old technologies. It is. I love it so much for that. I do a lot of my printing at Madison College, which is beautiful space. And I always joke that when the apocalypse happens, that's where I'm going to go because <laughs> you don't need electricity to operate a lot of the equipment. And so uh, what kinds of... What kinds of workshops uh, have you been having so far and what has the attendance been? So I have open studios on Thursday night from 5.30 to 7.30. So shameless plug, please come visit me at the Central Library. It's been random. I can't quite get a sense of who shows up to the library Thursday night. Sometimes it's adults. Sometimes it's families and their kids. Sometimes it's my friends stopping by. So I'm also hosting a Oracle Deck workshop for people to come and make their own Oracle Deck of whatever cards they want to bring into fruition in their lives. How many cards in a typical Oracle Deck? Um, seems like the average number is 44 based okay. on my research. My deck will have 30 cards. 
the math around the printing made more sense. And has any any of the predictions from the Oracle deck come true? I can't say yet. You can't say it's too early. Too <laughs> it's soon to too tell. Too early. Um, and then we I also did another workshop called Wish on a Stick that was really fun. The library put out a call for uh, trophies, and so people repurposed trophies. They made a wish, wrote their wish in the place where the trophy would be, and a little spell on the bottom, and made really so like like trophies like that you would win for you know best in show or something exactly or? they were really the collection was phenomenal there was a, a hockey star from omaha that donated a bunch of their trophies <laughs> no a giant one for photo journalist of the year I mean, just random and delightful and you also uh, are working with WORT uh, to help refresh our mural here. Tell I us about am. That. I am. Yes, it's uh, it's been really fun to think about how to bring the you know wart to life on the you know. So is this a completely new mural, or are we rehabbing the existing one? What's what's happening? Completely there? new mural. You know, more to come. But stay tuned for you know artists. If your ears are perking up, uh, I think we're going to put out a call for. Okay. Is there a theme to the mural or other than WRT is fabulous? <laughs> to be determined. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so yes. it's still still in the very early phases of uh, what we're looking at. Yes, here. there's been a whole team of people putting their heads together to think about how to raise the funding for this project. If there's going to be kind of an external revamping, why there, there's other work that needs to happen to the wart building. So is it useful <laughs> to, you know, how much of that to, to combine together? All right, we've been speaking with Madison Central Library's artist in residence for September to December 2023, Maria Shermer Devitt. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporter was Charlie Belosky with help from Zoe Sullivan. Special thanks to feature contributors Labor Radio's Frank Emsbach, Harry Richardson, and Nicholas Leet for technical production and 8 o'clock buzz host Brian Standing. Victor Calzoni engineered the show, Faye Parks produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a great night.